Five weeks ago, we began our series in Genesis with this title called In the Beginning. And the idea has been to explore the beginning of our human story and where it fits into God's story and making the universe. We, we realize in doing this that Christianity is not a religion based on morals. It's not a religion based on principles. It's not a religion based on teachings. Christianity is not even primarily made up of doctrine, although it has doctrine and all of these other things in it. But unlike many faiths or philosophies in the world that are built upon ideas or teachings, Christianity is primarily about a person. It's primarily about Jesus the Christ and the fact that he lived, that he died and was resurrected. If that didn't happen, Christianity wouldn't work just based on, those, on the teachings. Christianity then is based in history, what actually happened, how God put on flesh, how God became Jesus the Christ, how God died for our sin and rose from the dead. History matters because it's an account of God's initiative and God's relationship with people throughout time. History matters because if we follow the story of God's history and our place in it, we will find Jesus. And history matters because we are still making history as we live in God's story and find our place in it. So, because history matters, because we are in God's story, it would be a really good idea for us to visit the beginning, right? To kind of get the... Uh, the prequel, if you will. Isn't that the popular thing with film? You know, you, you have a, a great film like, oh, I don't know. Name one. Batman. Batman. Thank you. Batman. <laughs> Did somebody say what? Aladdin. Aladdin. Yeah, we need the prequel on Aladdin. That's it. Yeah, I don't, don't you just love the movie? Like, I love the Batman movie where it shows how he became Batman. The training. I love that. Anyway. Uh, this, so what we're doing is reading the prequel on our story. How did all this come about? Why did Jesus need to come in the first place? Well, we've seen so far in this series called In the Beginning, how God created all things, including you and I. How he declared it all very good. And we saw how God created us to bear his image how he calls us to reflect his character and his wisdom to each other and to all of creation. And then we saw last week how human beings rebelled against God. They broke that trust with him. And that act, that breach of trust with God should have, should have resulted in death and just annihilation. Like the story should have ended before Genesis 3 even got over. And we wouldn't have a Bible and we wouldn't be alive. Right? But... But God, but God had grace on humanity and promised, he promised that he would raise up a savior from the seed of the woman, that Eve's line would produce someone who would set our broken world right, who would rectify the broken relationship between us and God, that Eve's generations after Eve, that someone from her line would crush the head of the snake. So, with this expectation now of a Savior in mind, this expectation of a Savior coming out of Eve's line, let's pick up the story in Genesis 4. And again, I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word. I'm actually going to endeavor to read all of Genesis 4. So, just shake it off. Stay awake while we stand up. 
But it's important. It's important. So speaking of Adam and Eve. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of of the soil. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of fruit, the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, I guess about this whole thing, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day out of the face of the ground, and from your face I'll be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, which is wandering, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahuyael, and Mahuyael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. I promise this is going somewhere. Uh, Lamech took, he, took to himself two wives, and the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah gave him gave birth to Yabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Just in case you wondered where people who dwell in tents came from, it was from Yabal. And his brother's name was Yubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubalcane, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-seven. Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men begin to call on the name of the Lord. Father, we need your help with this passage because this is 
Seems like craziness to us in a lot of ways. A lot of strange names and strange places and confusion. But God, I thank you for your, your grace and your gospel, even in Genesis chapter 4. I pray that you would uncover it, today, uh, uncover it to us today and help us to respond in faith and joy and repentance. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in Genesis 4, right after Genesis 3 when there was this whole curse against Adam and Eve and then this promise that from Eve's line, her offspring, was going to come this savior, this one who was going to defeat evil, is going to crush the head of the serpent. So, as we enter Genesis 4 and we read this story about... Eve conceiving, and is a male, and it's, his name is Cain, automatically, I think, uh, my radar is up for, hey, maybe this is, the, maybe this is the, the fulfillment of the prophecy, that maybe this is the hero we've been waiting for in the story. That's how stories go, right? Like, you get the prophecy, and then you get this awesome fulfillment. So Eve gives birth to this son and names him Cain. In the ancient Near East, as in many cultures today, actually, not, not our own, but uh, many in the East, um, firstborn males are favored above all other children. They get things like double inheritance uh, over all the other kids. They, they're kind of like the dad's right-hand man. They have more honor and more, uh, just more favor with the parents. It's really not fair, uh, but that's just the way it was. The firstborn male had privileges, not only in the family, but in society. Because everyone who looked at that firstborn male would say, Oh, there's the number two in that whole clan. Cain's name even evokes strength and privilege. His name means to acquire or possess. It's, he's a firstborn male and he's, he's strong and he takes what is his, right? Well, next comes Cain's little brother Abel. And not much is really even said about him, but his name kind of foreshadows his destiny. Because Abel means breath or vapor. It basically means he's insubstantial. I mean, it's not very nice to name your kid that, right? Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, that's Abel's name. And uh, it, it, the scriptures tells us a little bit more, like Abel is a, a shepherd, he's a sheep herder, and Cain tills the ground. And both of these jobs are jobs that Adam was given by, uh, by God. Remember, he was supposed to keep and cultivate the garden and care for creation. So both these jobs are noble jobs. Abel the shepherd, Cain the tiller of the ground. Now, just for, at face value, you look at these two brothers, oldest Cain, strong name, possess, acquire, and then little Abel, who means vapor, insubstantial. Who would you expect the hero to be? Right? Who would you expect the hero to be? The big, strong, big brother, right? I was the big brother. Yeah. <clears throat> well, 10 years ago, I was in Reno, Nevada. I was at a technology fair. I happened to be in the Coast Guard at the time, and we had this portable incident command post. Basically, it was these two semi-trailers that you would take if there was a natural disaster and no electricity and no communications, you could pull them up and level them, and there's a thing that slides across, so they become one big command post. You'd have, like, uh, satellite communications and computers and stuff. So I got to go to this technology show with a team of people and set up this command post, right? It was really cool. We got to give tours and all this stuff. 
So there I am, in my uniform, all crisp and got folds and everything, uh, in this flashy command post. And the guy who was in the booth next to us, over in the parking lot, he was this shabby-looking older guy, kind of balding, kind of scruffy, in dirty coveralls. I even remember he had a hole in the left knee. He was there with these little remote-control cars. They were hydrogen cell powered you know so he was kind of that was his his deal he was into the hydrogen cells and and um so you know i I get to talking to him and kind of make friends and invite him into the command post and you know i'm pretty proud of our stuff right here's this scruffy looking guy with these toys and here you know i'm i'm pretty proud of myself right like i'm 25 years old i appear much more put together than this guy and he's he's there playing with toys uh and, and i've got this command post so we we come outside and um i say something like uh, this is like a year 2000 or maybe late 99. Yeah, I think 2000. And uh, the, the the market had dipped that day. And I said, crazy about that stock market, huh? You know, I'm just like making small talk. And he goes, yeah, I lost about $25 million in just over an hour. And I says, what? And it turns out this scruffy-looking guy uh, owned a, a a large trucking company and the largest shrimp fleet in California. He was a billionaire. And, um, and, and, you know, he just laughed about losing $25 million in an hour. But he said, ah, it'll, it'll bounce back, don't, don't worry. Very unlikely. I had no idea in my mind when just looking at the outside of this individual that he was a high-powered uh, owner of two major corporations shrugging about the loss of $25 million. Appearances on the outside can be deceiving, right? We would expect that Cain, the older brother, would be the hero of the story. Well, to judge Cain from the outside would be uh, a mistake, wouldn't it? The two brothers bring offerings to the Lord. God accepts Abel's offering, but rejects Cain's offering. The unlikely brother... The weak one, the younger one, finds favor with God while the strong, prosperous brother meets rejection. What's going on here? Why this strange turn of events? Let me give you a hint. It all has to do with the heart. You see, we find a clue in the fact that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from his harvest while Abel brings the firstlings from his flock. Cain brings an offering while Abel brings the firstlings, the best of his crop, the best of his his sheep, I should say. And and the temptation as we read that, right, doesn't that just cling in your mind? The temptation to read uh, this here is to, to jump right to application. If we go too fast, we might make the mistake of thinking that this scripture is all about behavior, that it's telling us we're supposed to do something, that we're supposed to look at these two brothers... And we're supposed to apply it like, okay, that means we've got to give more, right? Or serve God with better quality. That we've got to give the best hours of our day. Or give more money to the church. And trust me, if it was saying that, I would love to be able to say that to you. And while there's nothing wrong with giving our best, in fact, I think we are supposed to give our best to God. There is something wrong If we give our best or we go through the motions without the right motivation behind it. You see, the problem here is not that Cain gave such a bad offering. The problem is his heart behind the offering. His heart is corrupt. And how do we know that? 
Well, let's keep on going and we'll find out. Cain has been informed by God that his offering was not accepted. And in my mind, there's a couple ways a person could receive this news. I don't, put yourself in that situation for a minute. You've, you've, you've come to church, and you've, uh, you've done your thing. You, you, you gave 10%, let's say, of your income. It comes in the offering, and after church, God shows up, and he says to you, you know, there's a problem here with your offering. It's, it, it's not necessarily what you gave, but there's something going on inside your heart. There's two ways we could respond. One, and I, I would think, I would hope I would respond this way, would be, wow, I thought I was doing the right thing, God. My heart's not real. What's going on? Can you show me? Can you tell me what it is about me I could improve on? Could you show me what it is about my heart that's not pleasing you? I mean, so that's, that's one way, is that through some repentance and actually caring about your relationship with God. Or you could do what Cain did and get angry at God. See, Cain is a good guy, right? He's the firstborn. He's Adam's right-hand man. He's a farmer. And he brings his offering from his crops to God. He does all the right things. You know, in our day, he's the guy who goes to church every Sunday. He volunteers. He tithes 10%. He's a good guy. But something is wrong with his heart. He serves out of duty, but he doesn't serve out of joy and thanksgiving. Cain's sin is going through the motions. Listen to Proverbs 16.2. The ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motive. The Lord weighs the spirit of our actions. He weighs the heart behind our actions. So Cain does the religious thing, Kind of like an added insurance policy maybe to kind of keep God happy. He goes through the motions. Or maybe he does it as a cultural thing because his family is into it. But come on. Cain is strong. And he's privileged. He thinks, why not? He thinks he's the bearer of the promise. Hey, God gave this promise to my mom and dad. I'm the firstborn son of their line. Why wouldn't I be the promise bearer, right? I've got privilege here. And then he does what he's supposed to do. But Cain doesn't have that childlike dependence on God. He doesn't really think he needs God. And if he doesn't really think he needs God, he can't really, he can't really love God. He can't really trust Him with all that He is. So God confronts Cain about his heart. He says, why are you angry? Literally, why has your face fallen? If you do well, your face will be lifted up. You know that in, in the Hebrew, that, that meaning to lift up is actually to forgive or to accept. So if you do well, you'll be forgiven. If you do well, you'll be accepted. What this sounds like is God is saying, if you do the right stuff, I'll accept you. Isn't that what it sounds like? That's not what's going on here. As one commentator put it, the true sense of the phrase is, if you direct your heart towards what is good, you'll be accepted. If you direct your heart, God's not talking about good deeds or actions, but the disposition of Cain's heart. See, Cain misses the mark with his heart. His motivation isn't behind it. His motivation isn't really to love God or to trust God. And so God gives Cain a tutorial. 
He gives a tutorial in the ways of the heart. Kind of like those of you who are teachers, you know how you have that one student after the test that you've, you've given the study notes, you've helped them prepare, and then they get a bad grade because they didn't study. And they come on your door. Why did I get such a bad grade? Ryan's shaking his head. Yeah, you know the one. And why did I get such a bad grade? I don't get it. Well, you didn't study. And, and so, you know, you've got some options. But most of you teachers that I know, you've told me you give your students a tutorial. You say, if you want to do better on the next test, here's what you need to do. Here's the attitude you need to have. You're not entitled to everything. So God the Father gives Cain this tutorial. He warns him. He warns him. How gracious is that? He warns Cain that his heart condition is terminal if it doesn't change. He says that sin is crouched at the door, waiting to consume him. Crouched at the door, waiting, coiled up like a snake, ready to strike at the heel of the promise bearer. He's waiting like that ravenous lion described in 1 Peter 5. Sin crouching as a lion, waiting to devour. Cain, the firstborn, the possessor, the strong one, the bearer of the promise, does not have faith in God. His faith lies in his strength, in his privilege, in his entitlements. I'm checking myself when I'm reading those words. How much of my relationship with God, my position, is based on my privilege, my comfort, my entitlements? Folks, if we search ourselves, I think it's really, um, it's really intertwined in our hearts. That's why this message is so powerful. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is speaking of when he wrote, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel, the weaker brother, the vapor He found favor because he knew his need for God. He knew what it was to be thankful for what he had and to respond in love. His offering was was accepted because it was better. It was better and accepted because it was offered in love. It was offered in love. Well, we all know what happened to Cain and Abel. Cain ignored God's tutorial on the heart. Sin indeed takes over him, and he kills his brother. He kills Abel. The bearer of the promise to restore God's creation and to restore God's image bearers to rights has killed another man made in God's image. There's no coincidence here that the word brother is used seven times in the verses 2 through 11. And 1 John 3 reminds us that we cannot hate our brother or our sister and love God. We cannot hate people and genuinely love God because people are made in God's image, right? So now we see the depravity of Cain's heart. We see how much, indeed, Cain is really a son of Adam. In fact, the the narrator wants us to see that not only did Cain sin like his father and mother, but that sin is getting worse and worse and worse. Adam and Eve, for example, ate of the forbidden fruit after being tempted by the serpent. But Cain killed his brother and, and committed premeditated murder after being warned by God face to face. Adam and Eve disobey, but when they are found out, they're at least ashamed 
But Cain, he doesn't show any remorse. He doesn't even acknowledge that he's wrong. All Cain seems to be worried about is that his punishment is too much to bear. And so the infection of sin takes hold and gains sway over our fallen hero. Like his father, Cain is cursed, and clearly that shows that Cain is not a son of the covenant promise, but a son of the sea or a seed of the serpent. His punishment is a deeper curse on the ground, banishment from his people and from the land. He's already expelled from Eden, but now he's forced to go even further east. And as we're going to see as we work through Genesis even more, going east is always a bad thing in Genesis. But the rest of this chapter, most of it anyway, is about Cain's line. Cain is obviously afraid about people taking vengeance on him or killing him. And he leaves his homeland. Cain takes a wife. Where do these people come from that, Abel is, or that Cain is afraid of? Where does he get this wife from? I don't know. I know you're thinking that. I don't know. The story uh, in Genesis is not included um, to tell us how many kids Adam and Eve had or how long they lived or to give us some more lesson about incest. I don't even want to go there. Um, <clears throat> the account of Cain and Abel uh, is the account of the seed line of the promise. And it's supposed to show us how sin continues to degrade humanity and how God continues to respond in grace. It's not a history lesson. If we keep reading, we're going to find that just as God judged the sin of Adam and Eve, he judges Cain because God is holy and he is just. But, and because he's holy and just, he does not just allow sin to go unpunished. But just as God showed grace to Adam and Eve, so God shows grace to Cain. God puts a mark on Cain. What kind of mark? I don't know. Uh, some say it was a tattoo of some kind, or some say a birthmark, or some say it was an invisible mark on Cain's heart. Heck, I could be a, a mullet for all that I know. I, I don't know what it was. But, uh, but one commentator, uh, Walter Brueggemann, says this about the mark. On the one hand, the mark announces the guilt of Cain. On the other, it marks Cain as safe in God's protection. In such a simple way, the narrative articulates the two-sidedness of human life, in jeopardy of disobedience and yet kept safe. The mark on Cain announces that God has not lost interest in the murderer or given up on him. The mark announces that God has not lost interest in the murderer or given up on him. You see, God's justice system is not like our justice system. Our justice system says, you do the crime, you do the time. Our justice system is, i got to stop saying that fast, is primarily based on people serving time and paying back a debt to society. God's justice system is about redemption and restoration. God often gives people opportunity to respond to him and to show, to show repentance. The book of Romans, in fact, tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. God acts in kindness toward Cain in hopes, I think, that Cain's heart will turn in, in hopes that Cain will, will repent, do what is right, and be forgiven and accepted. As the story goes on, we see this 
provenient or general grace over Cain and his descendants. Cain was cursed, yeah. He's got to wander. But he makes a life. God's grace allows him to get married, to have children, to build a city. He's productive in some ways because of God's grace. His offspring get to add to culture by inventing musical instruments and metallurgy and animal husbandry. And all this is included to show that God's image bearers are responsible to create culture. And the other ancient Near Eastern religions, I don't know if you, you knew this, but in all the other creation stories, metallurgy and music and animal husbandry and all of these things are invented by demigods, by semi-divine creatures, not by human beings. So think of uh, the pan flute. That's supposedly invented by the god Pan. Right? But this is a polemic against those arguments. This is saying that, no, God's people, his image bearers, invented these things and create culture. So this is all, even in Cain's cursed generations, his seed line, that God is still giving grace for people to procreate and to create culture and some of these good and wonderful things. But by the seventh generation from Adam in Cain's line, a man named Lamech, typifies the fall of humanity as he sings this really ridiculous song, actually, about killing a youth and retaliation for merely being struck. He actually brags about this. And unlike Cain's murder, where he appeals to God for protection, Lamech doesn't even seek God's protection. He just arrogantly boasts and says, you know, if God was going to protect Cain sevenfold for anyone who took vengeance on him... The man who tries to take vengeance on me is going to get it 77-fold. And so we're left disappointed. The son, Cain, that we would have expected to be the hero, turns out to be more rebellious than his father Adam was in the first place. His family line is corrupted. And it makes you wonder, has God forgotten the promise? Is the promised seed of the woman in jeopardy. But then something happens. Adam had relations with his wife. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also was born a son. And he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The story doesn't end with Lamech. doesn't end with the fallen hero Cain. Another son is born. And his name is Seth. Which in Hebrew means foundation. Literally, that word is sometimes used to talk about your, your buttocks or your thighs, the strong position of a person's body. Seth, foundation. And then Seth has a son. You know what his name is? It's Enosh. Enosh means weakness. 
So the promised seed line through which God will save the world defies our worldly logic. We would have expected Cain, the strong, the firstborn, the grasper, the achiever. We would have expected him to be the hero. But in the end, God's plan will rest on a foundation of weakness. God's plan is based on faith. It is based in the heart. God will build His redemptive plan on a foundation of weakness. Not because being weak is somehow noble or somehow good, but because oftentimes when a person is weak, we are dependent on God alone. Amen? It was in Enosh's day that people began to call on the name of the Lord. It was in weakness that drove people to pray. It's in humility and trust and obedience that we rely on God to save. We rely on God to provide. We rely on God to redeem instead of our own power and our own privilege and our own outward appearance. You and I are the recipients of salvation because God's plan was built on a foundation of weakness. From this line of Seth, And Enosh, thousands of years later, Jesus the Christ would save the world, not by grasping to his birthright, but by emptying himself and dying on a cross. Jesus would inaugurate the rescue plan by emptying himself and not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped. Friends, You and I might have some of the heart of Cain in us. Corruption to our core. Trying to live our life through our power while going through the motions with God. I see some of that in my own life. It's a tiring life. And it's a dead end. The good news of this passage is that if you're tired of it, we can thank Jesus for His grace. And that he was man enough to be founded on a foundation of weakness in order to save us. All he calls us to do is to repent and to trust. Trust him and not ourselves. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for being willing to empty yourself of all your power and privilege. You despise the shame. Shame of going to the cross, of being abandoned, of being made nothing. And you did it for us. Lord, we confess our tendency to try and get by on our strength, on our intellect, on our position, to feel entitled to things. We suffer much disappointment because we think the world owes us something or that you should do different things for us or accept our Sacrifices more. Thank you that with you it's okay to be honest about our weakness. 
In fact, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So Lord, we come to you this evening broken. Confessing that we are weak. And we can't save ourselves. A lot of the times we can't get much right. We trust you to rescue us, to give us new life. And we pray that your spirit would fill us. Pray that we would live in hope. And as we trust you, as we abide in you, the vine, that we would bear much fruit in our life, giving you glory, being a blessing to those around us. Thank you that you don't only, you don't only rescue us and save us for some other time, but you give us meaningful life now. You've called us to reflect your glory. You bind up our broken images. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.